Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute, is brought to you by the members of the John Adams. Why not become a member yourself, or even better, a patron, and enjoy all the extras and benefits? Find out more at john-adams.nl, john-adams.nl, and click on Become a Member. From Amsterdam, this is Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute, a treasure trove of the best and the brightest of American thinking. And this show's great American thinker is former Clinton Secretary of Labor Robert Reich. Secretary Reich was appalled at American companies selling goods made abroad with child labor. So he asked those companies to stop. Most of them told me that their consumers, when confronted with a product that was so-called socially responsible but cost more relative to a product that was less guaranteed to be socially responsible but cost less, their consumers would take the better deal. And indeed, research suggests that that is exactly the case. And that is exactly why Robert Reich wrote his book, Super Capitalism. Back in January of 2008, the election that would make Barack Obama president was in full swing, and the world economy was in the midst of a major economic crash, which is why the John Adams hosted an evening with Robert B. Reich in Amsterdam to talk about the ideas expressed in supercapitalism. Now, Reich argues that capitalism has flourished at the expense of democracy for the last three decades, that people now see themselves as buyers and sellers first and citizens later, if at all. The rise of supercapitalism has meant fantastically increased choices for consumer goods, but also decimated public services, an end to job security, and looming environmental catastrophe. The U.S. leads in this dark trend, Reich argues, but Europe is right behind, and the only solution is to renew civic participation, to turn consumers back into citizens. Robert Reich is an extraordinary speaker, and even though this interview is like 15 years old, the trends he discussed back in 2008 are even more relevant today, particularly when it comes to global trade, worldwide supply chains, and why we still tolerate child and slave labor so we can have goods at low, low prices. The evening's moderator was Alexander Rinoy Khan, chairman of the Social and Economic Council of the Netherlands. So here's Robert Reich talking about his book, Supercapitalism. Uh, years ago, when I first began worrying about the global economy and its effect on democracy and on workers, I was six foot five. It took a lot out of me, wore me down. Uh, Actually, my major handicap, I should tell you, is not my height. It's that I am an economist. An economist is someone, you may know this, who did not have the personality to become an accountant. Is there anybody who I just insulted in the audience? Please put up your hand if I did. I'm sorry back there. Uh, What I'd like to talk about tonight uh, with you uh, is not only the themes in the book, Supercapitalism, but also the way the themes may possibly relate to the Netherlands. Uh, I do not want to, cannot be presumptuous enough to tell you that I really know what you are debating here, uh, but I have picked up 
in the day or two that I've been here some themes that I think do relate to the book that I'm interested in. Uh, you know, politics and economics go very closely together. That has been my life, and that's the story of my life. My first job was in Washington when I was 22 years old. I worked for Robert F. Kennedy for the summer. That was the summer of 1967, and I got hooked on politics. Even though I was so young, I was there for the summer, my job was to run his signature machine. Now, for those who, of you who don't know what a signature machine is, it's a ba very long arm that has a pen on the end, and you put the stationery of the particular person you're working for in the machine, and then you turn the machine on, and the long arm with a pen writes, according to a groove that's already been established, the signature, in my case, Robert F. Kennedy. And I did that for several months and was so bored that I decided the only way I was going to survive the summer was to do a little bit of something that was not quite legitimate. I began writing letters to my friends on Robert F. Kennedy's stationery. And there now are letters all over America, not that many, they're very collector's items, uh, that say things like, uh, Dear Mr. Dworkin, congratulations on having the largest nose in New York State, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, and it was toward the end of that summer of 1967 uh, that, and I had not seen the senator, I was bored, I was running the signature machine, but toward the end of that summer, uh, I was in the office building where the senator's office was, the elevator doors parted, and out came Senator Robert F. Kennedy with two aides on either side, talking to him like mad. Those of you who know Washington, in fact, who know politics, you know how that happens. But he came out and he looked at me and he saw me, and he smiled and he said, how's the summer going, Bob? He said, Bob. He knew me, and I smiled and I said, fine, Senator. I didn't see him again, but from that moment on, I would have run that signature machine for the next five years. I was so inspired. Uh, there is something about politicians, particularly talented politicians, that can inspire. Uh, people were asking me today what I thought about the American election. I have known Hillary Rodham Clinton for over 40 years. I was president of my class uh, in my university. She was president of her class at her university. We had a presidential summit. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> we went to see Antonioni's blow up. That's what we did. And uh, some members of the press asked me, they found out about it, they asked me recently about it, and I, I said I couldn't remember much except that she wanted a lot of butter on her popcorn. And the members of the press wrote that down very diligently. And it appeared, it actually appeared in the New York Times. So uh, if that is any indication of how she will make it as a president, just know that she did want a lot of, a lot of butter on her popcorn. Think about that one. Uh, 
Barack Obama is somebody who I have met and I know a little bit. Uh, and uh, either of them, in my view, my humble view, would make an excellent president. Uh, I know John Edwards a bit. Uh, I know some of the Republican candidates. I'm going to be uh, candid with you. I am, in terms of my values, not particularly impressed with any of the Republicans. Uh, but I am very impressed with Hillary Clinton and also Obama. Uh, what I meant to say, though, is that Obama has had an effect in America, particularly on young people like no one in, in American politics has had an effect on young people since Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, I don't know that that's enough to warrant being president, but I do know that it is extraordinarily important in America and perhaps also here in the Netherlands to get young people back involved in politics, back involved in democracy. There is too much cynicism about democracy and politics. And over the last couple of days, as I mentioned before, when I've talked to people here uh, in the Netherlands about politics and about the economy, I hear some interesting themes. One theme I hear is a concern that some of you may have that the economy, particularly the economy as represented by Dutch corporations, uh, Unilever or KLM, no longer a Dutch corporation, uh, or Philips, uh, that many of these large corporations are no longer becoming uh, Dutch. They are losing their national identity, and that is a problem in the view of some of you. Well, I do not believe it's a problem, because my book really is about global capital markets and the way in which global capital markets are forcing every company that is a global player to become more and more competitive in pursuit of capital and also in pursuit of customers and also in pursuit of talent. Capital, customers, and talent. Every company that wants to be a global player has got to be intensely competitive in pursuit of every one of those. And that means that it doesn't matter whether Philips or Royal Dutch Shell or Unilever or KLM is a Dutch company or a Spanish company or an American-based company, every global company has got to provide a high rate of return for shareholders. Every global company has got to provide good deals for customers. No global company can afford to favor any particular country or any particular people. I remember not that many years ago, I was talking to the president of or the CEO of IBM and I said, is IBM an American company? And he looked at me squarely and he said, no, IBM is a global company. In fact, we try very much to look like we are what every, whatever country we are doing our business in is. The standard of living of people in the Netherlands, just like the standard of living of people in the United States or the standard of living of people in any jurisdiction, is coming to depend less and less on the success of countries, head, of, co of companies headquartered in that country, and more and more on the value that people add to this increasingly interconnected global economy. Globalization is one of those terms to have gone directly from obscurity to meaninglessness without any intervening period of coherence. 
We think that globalization is about our companies versus your companies, but that is not the case any longer. When I was Secretary of Labor, I remember I needed to buy a new car. Uh, the family car died. I went on a Sunday to a car dealership, and I found a terrific Toyota. And I was just about to buy it. I went back to my office the next Monday, and I had a political assistant who got wind of this and said very politely, Mr. Secretary, I understand you're planning to buy a Toyota. May I remind you, you are Secretary of Labor of the United States. And maybe it would be wiser to buy a Ford or a GM or a Chrysler. And I immediately saw the wisdom politically of that young man's approach. So I went to a Ford dealership the next week and I found out a car that was almost as good as the Toyota. But I asked the Ford dealer uh, one very pertinent question. I said, I know that that has a Ford nameplate, but please tell me, was that car made here in the United States by American workers? And the dealer looked at me for a long time, trying to figure out, was I one of those? Or was I one of those? And finally he looked up with a smile and said, which would you prefer? <laughs> but you see the point, there is no longer an American car, there's no longer a Japanese car. The parts, components, the service is coming from all over the world. Supply chains, that's the term we now use. Supply chains are now global. A few years ago, I had my hips replaced. I had to. They are, by the way, beautiful new hips. I wish I could show them to you. But I was making this point about globalization, and I realized that I did not some, know something very personal about my own body. I didn't know any longer exactly where I came from. And so I went back to the hospital where I had my hips replaced and inquired. It turns out that my new hips were fabricated in Germany. And they were designed in France. I have French designer hips. <laughs> so you see, even when it comes to something as intimate as our body parts, we are all becoming global. And therein, again, is a very important story. Because the value that people here in this country or any country add to the global economy, depending less and less relevant and less and less dependent on the company's success of companies headquartered in that country, more and more on the value added by people in that country, which means education, early childhood education, primary, secondary education, all of the ways in which we learn to add value is becoming far more important than the nationality of the companies we happen to work for. Now this also pertains, the same theme pertains to another notion that has taken root in recent years, and that is corporate social responsibility. I, when I was Secretary of Labor, urged companies to be more socially responsible. We found many companies in the United States selling goods that had been made in sweatshops in developing nations. By sweatshops, I mean factories employing young children 
employing them six or seven days a week, often employing them 12 or 14 hours a day. Standards that would make your stomach turn. And as Secretary of Labor, I thought this was completely inappropriate. It should be illegal. I went to the companies, the major manufacturers and the major retailers in the United States that were selling these goods made in places that it seemed to me violated fundamental human rights. And I said to these manufacturers and retailers, you must, as a matter of corporate social responsibility, you must change your ways. Some of them cooperated a bit. Some of them better policed their supply chains. Some of them actually made sure that there were not human rights abuses in terms of making the garments that they sold or the toys that they sold. But most of them told me, frankly, candidly, that their consumers wanted the lowest priced goods they could possibly get. That their consumers, when confronted with a product that was so-called socially responsible but cost more relative to a product that was less guaranteed to be socially responsible but cost less, their consumers would take the better deal. And indeed, research suggests that that is exactly the case. Companies pride themselves on being socially responsible and are selling corporate social responsibility as a matter of public relations burnishing their corporate image. Starbucks is supposed to have a wonderful set of corporate responsibilities. Ben & Jerry's, part of Unilever, supports the plant life in the tropics and all sorts of wonderful environmental issues. We are very concerned in the United States at a company called Walmart because it seems to be a bad company and it's violating, well, it's not violating the law, but it's providing very low wages. But you see the problem with all of that logic about certain companies being good, certain companies being bad, corporate social responsibility, is that in the global competitive super capitalist environment we now live in, no company can afford to sacrifice returns to investors or sacrifice good deals to consumers for the sake of some common good. Unless there is a law that requires a company or an international labor organization precept or a WTO requirement, unless there is something that requires a company to provide some social good or some social benefit, that company has less and less discretion in this new global economy than it ever had before. Less discretion to sacrifice shareholder returns or consumer benefits. Now, where does that leave me? It leaves me with the following understanding. Whether we are talking about patriotic corporations, corporate citizens, corporations that are supposed to benefit the people who live in the country where the corporation is headquartered, or we're talking about corporate social responsibility, whatever we are talking about that is in addition to or besides a high return for investors or good deals for consumers, we are engaging in a land of mythology. It perhaps was the case in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, when there was less competition when there, more, there were more oligopolies, 
there were more companies in the global economy that did not face much competition, that had more discretion to be socially responsible or to favor the nation in which they were headquartered. It could be in those days that these notions of patriotism and corporate social responsibility had real meaning. Today, I'm afraid they are diversions. They are diversions from a more important political function. And that more important political function is to not only provide education and job training and opportunities for citizens to be productive and have high living standards, but also a political responsibility to respond to what economists would call externalities, social benefits or social bads, global warming, widening inequality, job instability, whatever problem there is with laws, with regulations, or with tax incentives that correspond to that social problem. And not rely on corporate patriotism, on corporate citizenship, or on corporate social responsibility to do it instead. My great fear, as someone who believes deeply in democracy and does believe that all of us have a responsibility as individuals, not just as consumers and as investors, but also individual responsibility to us as global citizens, my concern is that the debate over corporate social responsibility, just as the debate over corporate citizenship, distracts us from the more important job of creating those incentives, those rules, those regulations, those laws, or those tax incentives necessary to get companies to do what we want them to do beyond and above high returns to investors or good deals for consumers. That's what our democracy and our democracies ought to be focused on. So again, thank you so much for coming tonight. I hope that I've at least provoked you. I want to assure you that my book goes beyond the particular arguments I've made tonight. My book in the United States has provoked a lot of anger on the left of the political spectrum and on the right of the political spectrum, so I must be correct in my arguments. Thank you very much. And with that, the evening's moderator, Alexander Rinoy Khan, at the time the chairman of the Social and Economic Council of the Netherlands, took to the stage to rebut Robert Reich, particularly about what motivates a company to be socially responsible. So here's Alexander Rinoy Khan, followed by Mr. Reich's response to him. Thank you very, very much for that uh, eloquent introduction. Uh, those of us who have read your book will at least have recognized the themes that you proposed for tonight's discussion. We realize that not all the details have been covered, but there's more than enough to work with. Um, and I think uh, there will be plenty of opportunities for us to question some of your uh, underlying assumptions. Um, I think, in fairness, that the themes that you raise are ones that many of us will recognize as extremely relevant also to the citizens of this country and the inhabitants of this continent. And yet, in a way, some of your approaches, to me at least, are very American. 
uh, in the way they describe the world we live in and the role corporations play in that world. And perhaps one of the interesting outcomes of this event could be also an opportunity to share with you the perspective that we in this part of the world have of the role that corporations should or can play in helping us towards a better future, a future that is bright or not just in terms of our roles as consumers and investors, but also as our roles of responsible citizens uh, who vie for a genuinely better world. Um, your book, to some extent, is also a book of uh, strong dichotomies. You talk about uh, capitalism and democracy as two different sides of the same coin with very different roles. The interface between the two, of course, is where most of the action is and should be. And indeed, that is where you propose the action should take place. You talk, I think, strikingly about the schizophrenia of modern citizens in being perhaps concerned on one hand, but at the same time driven primarily by their needs as consumers and investors, and ultimately more strongly guided by the latter role than by the former role. And you talk, I think, quite cynically about corporate social responsibility as a genuine ingredient of company policy. And indeed your perspective on companies as bundles of contracts, as you call them, uh, is perhaps not the one that we would immediately recognize as being most relevant to uh, us today as we try to shape the future of this part of the world. Let me raise two other issues that I think are closer to the heart of your book and then perhaps also invite the audience to, to join and, and add their own questions and observations. Um, I think two issues that certainly should be addressed, especially given our own political traditions, are first of all, your call for, if you will, an awakening of the national state encountering the threats of supercapitalism. You describe the supercapitalism as almost a relentless machine that rolls on, is rather footloose, hard to grasp, it rolls on relentlessly, ultimately successful because you claim at least that at the end of the day, our interests as investors and consumers will prevail over whatever concerns we might feel as citizens of whatever country. And uh, your cure, if you will, against this particular diagnosis is to just encourage the democracies all over the world if they don't like what super capitalism does to create national laws to stop them or to at least counteract the negative side effects. What strikes me is uh, your reliance and your faith in national laws to be ultimately effective in doing that. Um, so even if your analysis is correct, my first question would be what makes you so sure that national laws, and especially national laws of a small country like the Netherlands, can stop this relentless machine, if the machine is really as efficient as you claim it to be. Because if it really is that efficient, then we should realize that, of course, a small country like the Netherlands itself will have to compete and will be forced to compete <coughs> by the same logic of your arguments against other nations uh, who will be eager for reasons the minister explained to attract the capital of supercapitalism, uh, and who therefore will not have complete freedom to set their own goals and standards, but will have to weigh the effects of those standards on their attractiveness as locations for supercapitalist activities that we all love because they create jobs and prosperity. So 
I could well imagine that you look for a response, but I would have expected you to pay much more attention to the opportunities for international action, international treaties, international activities, uh, organizations like the ILO perhaps. Uh, and yet in your book, there is hardly any reference to those. So that would be my first question. My second question would be on corporate social responsibility, inevitably. Uh, and again, uh, you're very, I think, uh, uh, cynical, uh, sceptical, critical analysis of what that could ultimately accomplish. Uh, and I really believe that at least that from the speaking from tradition of this country, we have good reason to be somewhat more optimistic, somewhat more optimistic. I certainly don't want to rule out the ultimate need for in terms of sticks and carrots, uh, laws as the ultimate safeguard of what we want to accomplish in this country. But we have, I think, a few genuine success stories to report. Let me just briefly uh, describe one of them to you. It has to do with the implementation of environmental policies in the Netherlands. This is a process that started in the 90s and very much at the beginning of that process, uh, uh, companies were given a choice, essentially a choice where the government said, we will have certain environmental goals that we want to pursue uh, we will be quite specific as to what these goals are, but we will give you a fair opportunity to basically organize yourself around those goals and realize them on a voluntary basis. We'll give you a fair opportunity to do that. And we will only intervene if we find out through objective measurements that you have failed in reaching those objectives. And as a result of that freedom, I think companies in the Netherlands on a sectoral basis organized themselves extremely effectively and over a period of about 10, 12 years were by any reasonable standard very successful in realizing those environmental goals using ways that appeal to them technically and economically, but at the end of the day reaching a political goal, I think more effectively, more cheaply, if you will, more efficiently, than many of our neighboring countries in Europe were able to do using the, if you will, conventional methods of just setting laws and demanding companies to abide by those laws, period. So, of course, there are many more details to this case and, and some members in the audience I know were involved in getting us there. It was not always easy, but I think it illustrates my point. There is room for companies taking genuine responsibility for what are ultimately national political goals and making significant progress there. And then the interesting point that I want to add to that observation is that if you look at the statistics, you claim in your book, and I agree that there is no significant difference in terms of hard economic performance between companies that do well on this scale and companies that ignore the calls of social responsibility. But the interesting point is there may not be a big positive difference, but there certainly is no negative difference either. If you look at the data, for instance, assembled by the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, one of the best examples of where these companies are assembled and tested objectively on their adherence to environmental goals, then you find that their performance is certainly no worse than what the average company has done. So it is possible, it is possible for companies to add, genuinely add to the social good of a nation at the same time live up to all the standards that super capitalism imposes. And I think we should encourage them to do so and be glad that they so often do. So I think you're being 
too negative on corporate social responsibility, and I think you'll be too positive on what national laws ultimately can accomplish. Well, you've made yourself clear. Um, let me say that Barack Obama is running on a politics of hope. Bill Clinton ran on a politics of hope. I want to share your hope. Uh, the problem is experience, at least in the United States, has suggested that your hope is not borne out. It may be here in the Netherlands, and I want to stress that we are dealing in different cultures, mm -hmm. and what works here uh, may work here and may work here permanently, and I congratulate you and salute the Netherlands and companies here for their corporate responsibility. But let's be sure about what we are debating. I am not for a moment suggesting that government should in any way stop setting goals. In fact, quite the opposite. I think government should set goals. Your example of government here in the Netherlands setting some environmental goals and then saying to companies, you voluntarily find the best way to achieve those goals. Or if you don't, if you fail, we will have to legislate, is precisely what I am suggesting must be done. It is the failure of government, at least in the United States, to be willing to say to companies, if you fail to achieve these social goals, we will legislate. It's that failure in the face of company statements of social responsibility that is most, most dangerous. Let me give you examples. We have right now a problem not only in, with regard to environment, but also with regard to health and safety. Many companies directing their advertising at young children of foods that are not nutritious. There have been a few threats to enact legislation. Companies voluntarily have set some guidelines and have abided by those guidelines with regard to advertising directed at children. The problem is we have found that those guidelines have allowed companies to do exactly what they were doing before. The guidelines are public relations. They are, they are designed to ward off and prevent legislation. They are not designed to actually cost the companies anything. Now, you say that corporate social responsibility does not cost a company anything with regard to the environment. And that may be the case. But we also know from many examples that corporate social responsibility, at least of a sort that companies profess to engage in, has been quite costly. And that's why companies have stopped doing it. Sunkissed Tuna, a major tuna manufacturer in the United States, a cannery, was under pressure from lobbyists, from corporate social responsibility people to stop providing dolphin uh, tuna that would, that would kill dolphins in the processing. And they came up after a lot of investment with a system of dolphin-free tuna. But it turned out that American consumers were not willing to spend any additional money to help Sunkist recoup the costs of that dolphin-free tuna. So what did Sunkist do? It had already made those investments. It went to Congress and got a law passed to require all of Sunkist's competitors 
to do exactly what Sunkiss did in providing dolphin-safe tuna. Now, that may be an example of corporate social responsibility, but it is also an example of corporations responding to their bottom lines. I want to also make sure that when we talk about supercapitalism, we're not talking about a relentless machine. I don't see it as a relentless machine. I see it as the demands of consumers and investors to get better and better deals in a global economy that is providing better and better deals. Consumers, at least in the United States, again, there may be a big difference between Europe and the United States. Consumers in the United States are saying, we want the best deals possible. We can now find them in the global economy. Walmart will provide them. Somebody will provide them. We therefore don't want to pay what is additionally required if additional expenditures are required for health, for safety, for stable jobs, for jobs that are not outsourced abroad, for jobs that don't denude main streets, for big box retailers, for all sorts of other potential uh, sources of, of social unrest. We consumers want the best deal possible. We investors want the best deal possible. But what I posit is that in all of us, there is not just a consumer and investor, there is also a citizen and a worker concerned about citizen and worker goals. And it's that tension that actually is the most interesting tension. Uh, very often I ask my students, do you shop for the best possible deal that you can get with regard to cut rate airline ticket fares? from one city to another, and the students say yes. And then I ask them, how many of you are concerned about the plight of unionized airline workers who are losing their jobs because of cut-rate airlines? And they say yes. I say, isn't there a slight cognitive dissonance between your roles as consumers and your roles as citizens or people concerned about social welfare? And they understand that there may be. My hypothesis that is that in many areas of life, globalization gives us opportunities as consumers and investors to have terrific deals, but those terrific deals violate some of our norms as citizens and as workers. And it's in that tension that we need a democratic or political forum in which to give vent and voice to those public goals and public needs. Now, Finally, you say, a small country like the Netherlands may not be able to do what a large country in a large market like the United States can do. And it can only do them setting norms and standards, perhaps through uh, international mechanisms. Well, that is exactly right. And in the book, I talk about the EU, the European, European Union, and the United States being in a special place because these two markets are so large that almost every global business wants to do business in Europe or the United States. That gives the European Union and the United States potentially a very large extraterritorial impact of laws and rules and incentives in terms of setting global norms. In the United States, for example, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which requires every company doing business in the United States, not only headquartered in the United States, to avoid certain corrupt practices that may undermine democracies around the world, that act, although not perfect, has had a very significant impact 
extraterritorial impact beyond the United States. The European Union could and does, in many respects, have the same sort of laws. Why not with regard to other social costs? Why not with regard to the environment? The ILO and the WTO, yes, they can have a greater impact, but as you know, the WTO considers itself to be in the business of trade rather than social concerns other than trade. Indeed, the WTO will often say that a nation's social or environmental concern is a non-tariff barrier. The WTO may be the last place in the world that you can get the kind of laws or rules or incentives in place that I'm talking about. So again, this may be a matter of differences in culture. I am not cynical. I think I'm being realistic about the limits of corporations, not because they are bad or evil, but for the, exactly the opposite reason. Because in a global competitive environment, corporations find themselves less able to be socially responsible than they were perhaps 20 years ago, when the corporate statesmen and social responsibility were possible because there was more discretion and the environment was less intensely competitive. We must be responsive to the rest of the world and not the world's bully. We must be a moral authority in the world instead of what we have sunk to. Thank you. Former Clinton Secretary of Labor Robert Reich talking about the ideas in his book, Supercapitalism. He was speaking with Alexander Rinai Khan at the time chairman of the Social and Economic Council of the Netherlands. Did you know that you can go to our website, john-adams.nl slash videos, where there's a link to this event, and we also have a newsletter you can sign up for and a veritable treasure trove of great American thinkers and speakers at john-adams.nl. And while you're there, why not become a member of the John Adams? Not only do you support what we do here at the show, you get a discount to future live events in Amsterdam. You can go see them be recorded. In the meantime, you should go to wherever you get your podcasts and review this show. This will help get the word out. We can keep on sharing the very best of American thinkers with you free of charge. That's it for this week's show. Our theme song is called La Prensa by the Parlandos. Our editor is Tracy Metz. From Amsterdam, this was Bright Minds, the podcast from the John Adams Institute. I'm Jonathan Gruber. Thank you for listening. Listening.